Hey, welcome to another episode of the Amps podcast. My name's Owen Peters. And I'm Owen Shirley. And the sound that you're listening to at the moment is some binaural recordings that I made on Sunday the 7th of June when I attended a Black Lives Matter's protest in the centre of our hometown of Bristol in the UK. Now, obviously, my main reason for being there was to show solidarity with the movement, but also being the typical nerdy sound editor that I am, I knew it would be an opportunity to record the sound of a city centre that had essentially been empty for three months under lockdown that was suddenly occupied by an estimated 10,000 people for the protest. And so I took along my Sennheiser Ambio Smart headset and plugged it into my iPhone as I walked along as part of the protest. And then this happened. And the sign that you've just heard is actually the moment when the statue of Edward Colston was pulled down. It was unexpected and I was feel very privileged and fortunate to have witnessed the event. And you can tell from that recording what an effect it had on the people who were there at that moment. Pretty exciting sound. I wasn't there myself, but kind of felt that energy come through the recording, which was really interesting for what's going to prove to be a really historic moment for Bristol. Yeah, it was obviously it was an important moment witnessing it, but just in the time that it took me to walk home from the city centre, which is 45-minute walk tops, by the time I got home, the news of the event had literally reverberated around the world. Yeah, I heard about it first from my brother in New York. Really? Before I knew about it from my own doorstep, yeah. Wow. Goes to show the impact it had. Yeah. But to catch that moment, that sound as well, it's just electrifying to hear that reaction. Yeah, it was just by chance. It literally, I was walking along in, in the march. Everyone was generally keeping their distance. And it just began to concertina up a little bit. The march sort of came to a bit of a stop and people were starting to get a bit too close and I didn't feel quite comfortable. So I walked 20 or 30 yards away from where I'd been standing. And as I looked up, I could see a rope round the neck of the statue and a and people starting to cheer and within 20 seconds it had come down so nice to have it as an introduction to our podcast which this time is an interview with leslie gaston bird who is a re-recording mixer originally from america uh, and now based in the uk she's had an amazingly varied career besides working as a re-recording mixer she's also worked in academic circles and served leadership roles in the Audio Engineering Society, first as vice president and then as governor at large. And recently this year, she became a member of AMPS Council as well, which made it a good excuse to meet over Zoom and just have a chat about her work and her background and her current projects. So without further delay, we'll now hand over to Leslie, who as well as being our guest interviewee, she stood in as a clapper loader for this shoot. So I'm just going to say this is Leslie Gaston Bird. Oh, Remote yeah. side. Take take one. Nice. Um, so, yeah, just again, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with yeah, us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. The first things that struck me when we talked before 
was just the range of experience that you have in so many different areas of sound. The podcast for us is very much about exploring just the diversity of sound mm -hmm. as, a, yeah. as an art form. And obviously yourself, you've worked in music, radio, TV, film. You've published a lot of articles and spoken a lot of presentations as well. And then we've obviously got the book, Women in Audio, this year on top of everything else. So a really nice tagline on your website, um, Master of All Trades, Jack of None. So it was a very nice witty <laughs> element, um, but also seems very true. So um, yeah, it'd just be great to hear to talk um, about that journey a little bit, really, how you found yourself across so many different areas of sound. Okay, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad somebody acknowledged the tagline because I worked really hard on that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think if people aren't paying attention, it almost looks like jack of all trades, master of none. But no, it's master of all trades, jack of none. And, and what I sort of like is, um, I don't know if you know, the girl guides uh, in America, they're called Girl Scouts, but I, I wanted to get the dabbler badge because I like to do all kinds of things anyway. Okay. And... Well, I mean, I guess my journey started in Dayton, Ohio, in the United States. Um, in the 70s, my dad had a reel-to-reel -reel recorder, and when I was a little girl, he showed me how to thread a tape machine when I was maybe six or seven years old, you know, so I was play playing reel-to-reel -reel tapes at a very young age, and I guess that was my introduction. And he had um, a box of cables from a store called Radio Shack, which I don't know what the counterpart here is in the UK, but it's just, you know... He had a box with tip sleeve quarter inch and RCA phono and, you know, just stuff, you know, obsolete connectors and stuff. And right. I remember just wanting to be able to hook a VCR up so that I could make a cassette of my favorite movie, Alice in Wonderland, which was filmed at Shepard and Studios. Okay. The yeah. one with Dudley Moore and, and Peter Sellers and those guys. And I love the soundtrack to that movie and I wanted to record it. Well... You know, I got into music and um, technology, and I went to Indiana University, started at a radio station there, um, and that's how I got started at National Public Radios, because I had that experience as a board operator. Moved to Colorado to become their audio systems manager for an affiliate of NPR, National Public Radio, and from there, recorded the Colorado Symphony, because I had that experience at NPR, and they were trying to get their recordings to be broadcast quality so they were looking for some professional help so I I signed on with them and then I decided I wanted to work in picture so it was actually 2002 when I got out of radio and it was um something I'd been trying to do for about 4 years from 1998 to 2002 I'm like I I'd, I'd like to change but it was really hard and in Denver Colorado I mean you know there were maybe four post houses yeah you know so I I think you know part of it was determination part of it was luck Mm -hmm. as we all know. And um, my first job doing uh, sound for picture was actually archival restoration from the Sony Pictures, Sony Columbia Pictures catalog. Oh, sure. We were using the Cedar Cambridge noise, denoise, decrackle, declick, and, uh, you know, that big four rack space green tank <laughs> that they had. Um, so that was my first gig, um, was doing noise reduction, and then I started moving up the post ladder, doing music searches, then doing some sound design for commercials, and then started doing short features and documentaries. And then from there, I uh, got my master's degree and started teaching at University of Colorado, which was a really hard thing to do, was to leave this post gig that I worked so hard to get and move into academia, and it's sort of like, uh, mm, yeah. more money or cred, you know, whatever you want to, however you want to characterize the dilemma. So that's when I got into academia and still freelanced um, and, and freelancing to this day. Um, 
no longer teaching at the University of Colorado, but I moved here three years ago with my husband and children, and that's pretty much the story. Hmm. Yeah, okay. What was the driver for wanting to move into Same for Picture? You said you kind of spent a few years trying to make that move. Um, I think it, it goes back to the 80s when I saw Leslie Ann Jones of Skywalker, you know, in front of one of those big consoles. And I sort of like, that looks awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and we had some, uh, a couple of my classmates work at Sony. Um, so Chris Odd, who's with Warner Pictures now, went to college and graduated a year ahead of us. And I had already always been envious of his move into motion picture sound, which was really soon after college, like his, his internship started then and took off then. And I'd always been curious, like, hmm, I wonder what Chris is doing. And I went to visit him and another classmate of mine, Larry, uh, who was at Sony Pictures at the time. And I'm like, oh, why didn't I do, why did I do that? Why did I get into radio? Um, and the answer for me is always comfort and sleep. <laughs> but I'll do okay. the thing. I'll, I'll do the thing that allows me to sleep the most. And film was not that thing, but I was able to work, you know, pretty decent hours at at Postmodern. So my first experience actually mixing for picture, coming from radio, you know. So if you're making the transition from radio to sound for picture, it's kind of weird because in radio, it's like the footsteps have to be loud, you know. Yeah. Because yeah. people are listening on the radio, and so you want crunch, crunch, crunch. You know, and I remember one of the first gigs I had involved footsteps and they're like, they're too loud. <laughs> you know, his feet are way down there. Why? You know, um, so I'm like, oh, I have to bring the footsteps down. Eh, okay. Subtle, subtle. OK, so, yeah, that was, yeah, just retraining my brain to work for, you know, to put stuff in a box in front of you rather than, you yeah. know, in your two ears was, was an interesting transition. It's like learning a new language of audio in a way that now mm -hmm. you have to think of perspective in relation to the picture where yeah. before it was kind of clarity, I suppose, with radio. it's Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. And creating a theatre of the mind is what they usually say. Yeah, of course. With radio, yeah. That hadn't occurred to me before because I've not worked in radio. I've worked in music and worked in post-production for film and telly. But often if we're laying up effects in for post-production, stuff is going to be kept quiet and often you'll just actually never hear it. But you're not really going to do that in radio then, I guess. You're never going to put something up and think, well, they might not need it. You, you either need it or you don't. Yeah, and it's, and it's fast too. And sort of, I mean, it, you just made me think in a weird way, my career progression is almost like the progression of film history itself because, you know, we started with Foley mm. on the radio with all the early radio dramas. And I've got a chance to work with the director, Donnie L. Betts, who did radio dramas. And I got to work with that and, you know, have the coconuts on stage and all that stuff. It was just sort of interesting. It's like, yeah, I've gone from theater of the mind to not. And yeah, when so when I got into academia and I started teaching kids about the history of sound for picture, you know, and then we tell them about those early pictures where they were doing Foley, you know, live Foley with some of the early talkies, right? I'm like, yeah, do you want to do that? We can do that, kids. I've got a director over here who's doing a radio drama. We need some student volunteers and let's, you know, see how this works. So it all comes full circle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's nice how um kind of very naturally came for you, but there's so much value in jumping between different platforms for sound. For sure, yeah. Another thing that sort of illustrates what you were talking about, about being interested in different things and getting different perspectives was working uh, with a planetarium and I had been doing some surround sound stuff with DVD audio, Super Audio CD. You know, this was um, back in 2006, I guess. Uh, and there was a local planetarium, the Natural History Museum. 
uh, Denver Museum of Nature and Science uh, got in touch with me and invited me to bring some students to work in their dome. And uh, they had 16 channels of audio in like a dome that was in front of the audience. So some of the sound was above and some was in front and some was down where the floor was. Yeah. And so that was interesting. Um, I think there were some surround speakers, but this was not 5.1. I mean, there were speakers there and up there and um, just trying to understand, you know, what people's experience would be um, visually, you know, as they're flying through the cosmos in this planetarium was interesting. And I think what made that even more interesting was the technology we were using at the time was called the Lake Huron computer or Lake Huron audio processor. Anyway, they had ambisonic tools in there as well. And I think it's been verified that Dolby bought the technology of that machine. And I think that was sort of like the granddaddy of Atmos. Oh, incredible. Sure. That must have meant a lot of experimentation for you in terms of just playing things back and trying to figure out what would work, I guess. And that led to actually meeting one of the, can we call him the godfather of ambisonics, Dave Malum? I hope you're listening. So <laughs> I got in touch with Dave Malum at an AES convention, and I just said, hey, I'm getting into this ambisonic stuff, and we're working with the lake. And he put me in touch with Eric and uh, eventually invited me up to York or... I think I approached him for a letter of invitation, if we want to be technical about it. But I ended up doing a Fulbright with David at uh, University of York mm. and using the sound field microphone and doing listening tests and using the VST plugins that were designed up there. I'm telling you, my journey, my career journey is exciting in itself. But I think one of the most exciting things I've learned is how the history is connected and the technology that brings us to where we are now and getting to meet the people who were behind that technology. Super cool. Yeah, I mean, such an opportunity. Yeah. It's great when you can tie those two things together, really, the practice, the craft of working in sound, but also having that time to research and meet new people and explore ideas that are on the edge of what we're using in sort of standard formats. Yeah, can't beat it. It's got me wondering, your academic life has been very active. And am I right in saying that you still do some lecturing? Yeah. So the Institute of Contemporary Music Performance in London, I teach there part-time. Yeah, okay. A class, music, new media, and the arts. And then uh, last year I did music for multimedia. I think what makes it interesting is there are students, young men and women who want music careers, but I think it's really cool to start turning them on to sound design. Mm. I always get in trouble because I say kids. They're not kids. They're young <laughs> men and women. But, you know, just to see them say, oh, sound design is cool. I've never thought about sound design this way. Or look at the musical things I can make visual. Look at the visual things I can make musical and getting them excited about that. Because I was that way, right? Or maybe you guys were too at 19 and 20, you know, you have rock star mentality, you know, and then you just start learning, you know, audio actually is cool. Yeah. Audio is a, is a cool discipline. And then you start getting into it that way. And so, you know, now I'm paying it back. I'm saying, you know, okay, Look at this cool thing over here. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So it's it's rewarding. It's such a nice thing about the academic environment that you can kind of be free to mm -hmm. just mess about with things and get excited about ideas and for no other reason than you are excited. Absolutely. But it's interesting that you've managed to find a sort of balance, mm -hmm. I guess, between the work you do and the teaching you do. Yeah, I mean, it's important to have those connections, right? Because I think even when you're putting together an academic dossier, you have to show that you're doing research that informs your teaching, right? So, 
And it's not just students who are coming into audio from music, but then there's students who are coming into audio because they like audio and they've been doing stuff at home and they've been working with Reaper and they've been working with Facebook 360 tools and they show up at age 19, like knowing how to do that stuff. And so the next cool thing is like challenging the students who are self-motivated. So then you have to say, okay, let's talk about head-related transfer functions and psychoacoustics. And it's like, okay, yeah, now we can go yeah, even further. So we're talking about with research and practice coming together. I'd be interested to talk a bit more about your book, Women in Audio, that was published at the end of last year, the start of this year. Did that come from research in universities or from your academic side, or did it just come from a more personal place? Um, yeah, it was a combination of things. So in a university, it's publish or perish, right? You live by that phrase. And, you know, of course, I have a number of papers in academic journals. And once in a while, Focal Press will send out a thing saying, hey, do you have an idea you want to propose? And in 2018, the Me Too movement was going around and a lot of the women's audio organizations were becoming very strong. And, um, of course, I knew about Women's Audio Mission in San Francisco, which had been around since 2006, kind of officially, but, you know, 2003, four, started forming. So I knew Terry Winston from going to AS shows. So I knew that had been there for a while. But something in 2016 is like women are actively saying, you know, come over here. There's this space where we support women. And, you know, the stories that you were hearing about sexism in the field I mean, until 2000, you know, that kind of time, you weren't hearing people talk about sexism in the industry like that. Yeah, sure. You know, I think it was coming from that. And so around 2018, I'm like, nobody's ever written a book about women in audio. And it seems to be like happening right now. So that's why I pitched the story. One, I had to publish and two, all this stuff was going on. And they're like, yeah, you're right. There's no book about women in audio. I'm like, I'm going to write this book. And it was going to be like a real big research paper. And that's the way I approached it. And I soon found out that was not the right approach to take. Because as an academic, I'm like, right, I'm going to go to the library, find a bunch of articles, and I'm going to write this book. And then I found a woman who had done an album in the 70s called The Changer and the Changed. And she was the engineer for this record that was produced, recorded, released all by women. In the 70s, this was unheard of. So I got in touch with her and her name was Joan Lowe. And she says, you know, I'm 90. And so my ears aren't what they used to be. So I'd rather not do a phone interview, but I'll email you some stuff. And so she sent me this great email, which is in the book, you can read this email she sent about how they recorded the album and how they, you know, took a multi-track tape recorder from place to place. It wasn't done in a studio, it was done in multiple locations. Anyway, I got an email about four months later. They said, hey, did you interview Joan Lowe recently about some book you're writing? I'm like, yeah. They said, you know, she passed away a couple months ago. And I said, what? And they said, is it okay if we send you some pictures? She had no children, you know, no family. And I'm like, okay, send me some pictures. And so this guy named Dana Burwell sent me, I know this is a podcast, but here they are. Um, (laughs) So talk about theater of the mind. I'm opening an envelope. (laughs) And so he sent me a... (laughs) He sent me, you know, pictures of Joan, which you can see in the book. Oh, great. And so he sent me pictures of Joan. And, you know, when I got this envelope with these uh, lovely pictures, there's one, you know, like professional photo. He sent me a black and white photo of her as a child. And he sent me a picture of three women dressed for summer 
wearing t-shirts that say Jones Crew. And so I guess they were audio engineers too, but I have yet to um, find out who these ladies were that were in the picture. And it occurred to me, dang, who else were these pictures going to go to? Yeah, okay. What was going to happen to those pictures and that story? And I think that's when it hit me. This is not a research paper. This is living history. Mm. And there are a lot of women who can tell these stories. So I need to start interviewing women. So I found all these women to interview. Uh, Lori Spiegel, um, who composed work in 1970. Her work is on the Voyager spacecraft on the Golden Record. Oh, sure. And I talked to um, some women who aren't that old. This maybe a decade or two older than me, like um, Lenise Bent, who was the first woman to get a platinum record for Auto American, which was the Blondie album. Okay. Okay, yeah. Talked to Carla Scaletti, who invented the Coke pop and fizz, the sound of the Coke can opening and going. Oh, right. That's actually electronic music. It's not a sound effect. She created that with electronic instruments. So cool. All this stuff. Right? And so it became that kind of book. Mm. And then I think around July last year when my publisher was like, right. So are you ready? I'm like, I just have 20 more interviews to do. (laughs) You know, and I found a woman in France who developed a technology who that predated DTS. So she developed LC concept systems, was a film format where the time code was on the film and the sound played from a CD. And that sounds like DTS, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. Incredible story about how, I mean, her technology was first. That's documented fact. Her patent was first. Uh, her movies were first, so Cyrano de Bergerac and Basic Instinct, all these films came out before Jurassic Park. And as a matter of fact, uh, when Jurassic Park premiered in France, there were police officers in the projection booth in France to make sure that that film did not use the DTS equipment. Huh, okay. Because she had an injunction for patent infringement. So they were not allowed to play the DTS soundtrack. It's just amazing stuff. Wow, yeah. And so her name was um, Elizabeth Luchen, and she's in France now. And uh, she told the story of how she confronted Steven Spielberg. So this book has been transformative, absolutely transformative for me. And I told on one occasion, I told my husband, after I talked to Elizabeth, actually, because she was weeping during the interview, and she's like, I just got to get my story out there. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, I'm being I'm being handed the flaming torch of, oh, my God. So I got off of Skype with Elizabeth, and I came in here where my husband was working into this office from where I'm speaking with you. And I just told him, I'm going to take a walk. And I went outside, and I walked up the hill, and I'm just like, this is like destiny or a calling or what is this, you know? And so I'm just honored beyond words to be able to tell these stories. You know, and some of them are heartbreaking and some of them are just regular tales of a woman, you know, working hard. But the one thing that unites all of these stories is we don't want to be women in audio. We are audio engineers. Yeah, sure. And that's that. Across the board, everybody I interviewed just wants to be an audio engineer. And and Mm. the fact that we need a book called Women in Audio, you know, is telling. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I did have in mind to ask you if there was anything in particular that you learned from the experience of research in the book, but clearly there's too many things. I mean, that is just incredible. And just to spin it from what is effectively like a negative in the all the stories coming from the Me Too movement to then find something so positive. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like the book came together 
fairly rapidly, really. If you only pitched the original idea in 2018, then changed your mind last year, and then it was published at the end of... Yeah, it it killed me, (laughs) uh, and it almost killed my kids, let me tell you. (laughs) Uh, we had to move the deadline a couple times. The book was greenlighted in uh, 2018, but of course I you know, had thought about it before that. And a, a couple of people had said, you know, this came together really quickly. And I think it kind of had to mm. because I had seen some other women. Uh, there's a woman named Madeline Campbell who started a Women in Sound magazine or zine. Mm. Uh, and there's another woman who was sharing stuff with me. She's like, I'd always wanted to write this book, but you're doing it. So I'm just going to give you this stuff. And I think if I had taken longer, maybe it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. You know, life certainly got weird here, you know, recently. <laughs> so kind of glad I kind of shoved it out there. Yeah. I mean, you'd have a lot of time to write, but not so much time to meet people. And yeah, as Owen said, I mean, that is an achievement, especially when considering the, the breadth of the book. Yeah. Because what got me interested and excited about it is that you cover the whole history of sound. It's not just a kind of here and now snapshot, but from the birth of sound technology right up to today. And I'm sure that fills a lot of gaps that most people like myself wouldn't even know existed. Oh, yeah. I love doing the history section, and it's apparent to me that I think we have a history timeline on the AES site, and I'm, I think it's about time we updated that because there's some people who are missing, but yeah, sure. there's more to be done, too, and there's some stuff that I left out. Uh, for example, I left out some stuff about Poland, Poland being one of the uh, countries where there are more women than men working in audio. I left out talking about Japan, where there's an amazing live sound. Okay. Or live uh, women in live sound are predominant. And I had wanted to travel to Japan. So, yeah, I mean, there's more work to be done, and I'd love to do another volume and, and fill in the gaps. But I did find out some really cool historical facts and things that tied things together, I think, in ways that people aren't aware of. Yeah, which would be fascinating, really. Like coming from like a film studies background, personally, it would be great to have that book on the shelf of a library and I've had access to that then. But like I say, great to read it now. Mm-hmm, thank and you. I look forward to the next part, I guess, as well. Yeah. I was just wondering if we could move on and talk a little bit as well about your work as being a re-recording mixer or working in sound. In particular, the feral films. I say films plural, but I don't know if that's right, actually. It's quite an interesting project. Correct me if I'm wrong, there are three feral films and the third of those films is a feature, but the others are shorts. Is that right? Well, what happened was there are four feral films and they've all been combined into one feature. Ah. Okay. I knew it was ambitious. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And a very good thing. And the thing that struck me in doing a bit of research about that was that it's been shot over four years. So you get to see those characters age over that period. Right. And that sort of feeds into the film as well. Well, you know, we don't age. The little boy ages, but, you know, we we just stay the same age, of course. The adults. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky us. I know, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so it was interesting. I, I'm not sure that during the f- filming of the first movie, directed by David Lieban, whose son, Caleb, stars in the film. During that first movie, I think we knew that there might be three more, but we weren't sure because it was all reliant on funding and the interest and, you know, what we could sustain over, you know, that period of time. But then by the time the second one rolled around, he's like, yeah, we're going to do three more. In doing lectures for this film, one of my favorite slides is to show how Pro Tools and Premiere and Mac OS evolved over those four years. Sure. Oh, okay. Because I believe we started the first feral during the transition from Pro Tools 10 to 11. And 
Adobe Premiere changed to the extent that we had to switch from using OMFs to AAFs because yeah. right. importing OMFs wasn't working anymore. And, you know, I don't even have to tell you guys. Yeah, and Premiere and Pro Tools aren't the happiest of bedfellows, are they? Right, and then moving everything into a cloud. So it was, oh, mm. <laughs> Of course, the implication is, okay, I need to go back and get something that I worked on and fill in the blank. And then the other cool thing was part of the post-production of that movie happened when I moved to England. So for the first part of the series, I was in Denver. For the second installment of the movie, I was moving. So we ended up using Source Connect to do the Foley session. So I set up at Sound Disposition with Roland Heap. Mm-hmm. And then we had Rocky Mountain Recorders in Denver with Justin Davis. And we set up Source Connect and we did Foley across two continents, oh, wow. which was interesting. And we did like two days of Foley over that time. Learned a lot and got to talk to the guys at Source Connect who are wonderful. The stories I could tell. But the session went really good. I mean, the session went really smoothly. For the third installment, we did all the Foley locally. And for the fourth installment, we did all the Foley locally with the wonderful Anna Sully and Naomi Graham Mm -hmm. and Ariana Canepa. And let's see who else was audio on that film. Josh Kern wrote a lot of the music, and he was a former student. uh, And he's now working in L.A. And Kelly Kramerick was a student who started her own post-production business since the making of that film so it's it was great for students it was great for um, the professor so the director is a professor cool university of colorado denver um and so finally that movie's getting a distribution deal and hopefully you guys will be able to see yeah it's yeah that's our hope we're yeah. both trying to find it yeah you know ahead of talking to you in the yeah. hope that we might at least get one of the shorts but I didn't realize that they all made up the final feature in that way. Yeah, it's good. It's called, um, the website is feralmovie.net and the name of the movie is A Feral World. Yeah, great. Thank you for that. So I guess I was interested because that is a very long term collaboration, really, and a very, I guess, fragmented because you are talking about four separate chunks. So how you approach the overall soundtrack to that? Is it four separate soundtracks or is it one whole yeah it was so weird so when we went to do the layback for all four films together uh you got to hear your mix approach from four years ago Mm. yeah you know which was totally different so when we first started i had the conversation with the director i'm like okay this is a post-apocalyptic world right he says right i'm like i've got planes trains and automobiles and the dialogue track do we keep that stuff and he says no i say okay (laughs) we're not going to keep that stuff When I go back to listen to four years ago, my approach mixing wise, it's like, I should have kept the stuff, you know, because it, (laughs) you know, because the dialogue track would have sounded so much more natural if we had just had, okay, so some distant traffic. So there's some people with cars at the end of the world. That's not the end of the world. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. So listening to my mix approach, I think, was the biggest thing that I wasn't as happy about. So it's minus 23 here yeah. mm-hmm. and minus 24 in the state. So I was hitting minus 24. So, you know, I'm like, well, wait, which one do I go for now? Oh, okay. And then I going from Isotope Insight to Waves Loudness Meter. It's like mastering an album that had been recorded over four years, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, exactly. So I think that was the, the biggest thing. It came together nicely, of course, because I made it do that because that's what a mixer does. But those were the challenges of, of making it come together. It's just like, what was the target four years ago? Mm. Yeah, and refinding that thread and trying to work with your own improvements, I guess, while finding a consistency across that that works for the film. Yeah. I think every sound person can relate to that. 
Yeah. It's valuable but painful. Yes, yes, yes. And I don't I don't <laughs> want to work over four years again like that. I mean, it's so much better if you can just get in, dive in, you know, like for my more recent documentaries and stuff I've been doing. You know, you got two weeks on a project and you make it perfect <clears throat> and then, yeah, right? of course. And then you're done and you move on. So were you pulled towards documentaries out of a passion for that area or did that just kind of happen quite naturally with the collaborations? I think it's the market, Denver's uh, documentary market, sure. uh, more so than short features. I mean, and there are short features that come out of Denver. I just worked on one called Rent-A-Pal that I'm excited about. Another distribution deal in the works. Stay tuned. Right. So, yeah, it's just sort of the market where I was, was documentary based. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And that's sort of continued right up to, would this be your latest documentary, Leap of Faith? Yeah. So Exhibit A Pictures is based in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, they reached out to me because I had worked with them on a film called Doc of the Dead, which was 2014, I think. And it's so funny because I do not like horror movies. Like, I would not rent or watch a horror movie by choice. Okay. I've been getting a lot of horror movies lately. And so they called me last year and said, hey, you know, Leslie, what's up? We've got this documentary. I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll do a documentary. They didn't say it was about The Exorcist. (laughs) (laughs) i have been trying not to watch that movie since 1976 when the thing came out i'm like i'm just never gonna watch that and of course the documentary is a very explicit detail about the making of the movie and the you know the philosophy of the movie and the motivation of the writers i'm like wow i am in it (laughs) i'm not just watching it i'm in the movie you know like living the world of the making of it so um, but it was an incredible movie. They talked about the sound design. William Friedkin, who is the director, goes into how they did a lot of the sounds. They talk about putting a microphone down a bottle with a fly inside the bottle to create one of the effects. Uh, they talked about using an actress who had an androgynous voice for the voice of the demon. Mm. And they talked about you know where they found this actress and her background and how she needed to record her part to make that, uh, you know, demonic voice. She drank alcohol, raw eggs. (laughs) They had her tied to a chair and she smoked. And that's how she got that voice. It wasn't special effects. It was this actress. Holy. Wow. Oh, and she had to have two priests on the set with her to console her after she did her scenes. Uh, just crazy That's stuff. really getting into the role. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you know, and she was a reformed alcoholic, so she, she said, if you want me to do this, I have to drink alcohol. And she's... Wow. <laughs> so this film premiered at La Biennale yeah. de Venezia, Venice, mm-hmm. right? And then also at uh, BFI and had a premiere at Sundance as well. Cool. Yeah, it seemed to be really well received. Yeah, very, it's a great film. Yeah. And you'll be able to see it soon. Yeah, hopefully. Because, yeah, for me, it's a great example of sound design. And I think William Friedkin seems to view a film as a very audio-visual experience, you know, and takes that element very seriously. So It was also interesting from an archival point of view because the film was not released in surround. The film was mono. Oh, okay. And so all the tracks I got were mono or maybe even left-right. And so I said, wasn't that film ever in... 5-1, and they're like, yeah, we have the surround track. So I went on IMDb, and I'm like, was this film in 5-1? 
And I think it showed in mono, and I'm not sure when they came up with the 5-1 mix, so it must have been a remaster or re-release or something. Mm -hmm. But I got the surround tracks for The Exorcist and got to use those, yay. Cool. Uh, you know, there was some detective work going on there. Yeah, right. As an aside, hopefully by the time the podcast airs, I'll have more information. I literally just this week shipped the deliverables for Leap of Faith. And got an email from the Rentapal guys. So fingers crossed, I'll be able to say something soon. Yeah, sure. About how to watch? And if you've also been um, nominated for an Emmy last year, is that right? But as a producer? Uh, yeah. So the Heartland Emmys are part of the Emmys, but they do it by region. So the Western region is the Heartland Emmy, and I'm not really sure what Chicago and DC they all have. Oh, okay. You know, various regions. So we were the Heartland Emmy. And yeah, I was nominated as a producer. So the reason that comes about is because I wasn't getting paid to do the sound on that one. She's like, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give you an executive producer credit because yeah. you're investing your time in it. Yeah. Once we got nominated, I asked the Heartland Emmy people, I'm like, can you put me down as re-recording mixer? Because that's, you know, that's what I, my name is in the credits as executive producer and as re-recording mixer. And I'm like, can you do both? And so there was this back and forth about, well, I don't know if you can change, you know, because you didn't go in under this category, you went uh, under yeah. this category. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to jeopardize anything. Well, don't do it. Don't, yeah. <laughs> don't put my name. I'm sure this is like riveting for the people listening. But if you go to the website and you see the nominations list was published before I made the request. And that's how that happened. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you very much. That's the appropriate much. thing to say anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Like still nominated, still going to put it on the old CV. Definitely. Yeah. What do you think is next? Talking about sort of CVs and accomplishments. Do you know what will be keeping you busy next? No. You know what? Actually, you know, I went up to London recently to talk to uh, some folks about doing some ADR up there. Mm -hmm. And then everything happened. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm sort of just looking for a gig. And the three most recent projects are all being distributed this year. So I'm hoping just to gain some traction from those projects and put it on my LinkedIn and whatever. So I'm just kind of waiting around for the next project. Hashtag yeah. freelance. Hashtag COVID-19. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We're all in a kind that. of hibernation at right, the moment, right? So. Right, I Who knows? Um, I would love to do more freelance. But the concrete thing that I have on my plate that I know for sure is happening is I'm going to start a PhD at the University of Surrey. Right. And my dissertation is called Immersive Inclusive. So I'm looking at, you know, Atmos and RO3D our formats that are out there and being widely accepted. But mm. when we look at the forums and the people who are working at those formats, it doesn't seem very inclusive. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we'll see what my research will reveal over the next three years. But it'd be nice just to have um, more representation because, I mean, this technology is a big deal and people are getting um, Atmos certified. You know, the certification you can do um, if you want to do Atmos remixes for Netflix and stuff. It's like, this yeah. is kind of a big deal and a big market. and. Mm. I'm concerned about the representation, so we'll see. I'll let you guys know in a couple of years when my dissertation Yeah, come comes back out. and speak to us about it. I'd love to. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you so much, Leslie, again. This has been a brilliant chat. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you, guys. I mean, I think being part of AMPS is rewarding, and I think it's important just to be able to be part of this, you know, this community of people who are passionate about sound. So it's an honor. Thank you. So thanks again to Leslie for taking the time to speak to us and tell us about her really interesting career to date. Yeah, it was a brilliant discussion, just some really interesting stuff. And I'm looking forward to seeing Leslie's films when they come out, those that we talked about with the uh, the Exorcist documentary and Feral. Mm -hmm. 
and also reading more of her book, Women in Audio. I bought myself a copy and I'm about 40 pages in so far. I really recommend it. It's a brilliant read. So thank you for that as well, Leslie. Yeah. And we hope to bring you some more interesting discussion with other professionals and AMPS members in due course. Um, in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at AMPS Podcast. Um, you can email us at ampspodcast at gmail.com if you've got any comments or suggestions. And for anyone interested in joining AMPS, membership is open to those working in sound for film, TV and games, as well as students who intend to make it their profession. So if you'd like more information about AMPS and how you can become a member, please visit amps.net. Yeah, so we'll look forward to uh, bringing you another episode soon. And in the meantime, here's the sound of the best film of the year so far that I managed to catch outside my studio window uh, just a couple of weeks ago when we were having heavy rain and thunder here in Bristol. It was a big one. Yeah, I grabbed uh, my Sony D100 recorder and managed to record some torrential rain and thunder strikes for a good 20 minutes or at least until my arm fell asleep so here you go we'll see you again next time well we won't see you because you can't <laughs> see you it's a podcast you'll hear us again <laughs> next time <laughs> yeah join us next time when we'll be talking about something with someone <laughs> we don't know yet <laughs> yeah hopefully <laughs>